So I want to show you the only thing standing between me and the deadly sin of sloth. These are my knee braces, my ace knee braces that keep me from falling into complete physical disrepair. The reason I have to wear them every time I work out, every time I exercise is because years ago I broke my leg very badly running into a parked car, but that's a message for another time. And ever since then, my knees, both knees, tendonitis, prearthritis, all kinds of things are going wrong with them. So these help to keep me whole. The only problem is, and I found this out most recently when we were traveling. How can I put this delicately? They can stink. They can really, really stink. I can't wear them and then pack them up. Or my luggage starts to smell like a locker room. And I can't wash them really thoroughly and then expect them to dry by the time that I'm moving around. On a recent vacation, we moved around a lot and I wanted to stay in shape and exercise. And so I found myself in a conundrum. I found the best way to be able to clean these things off and make them not stink. The minute I get back from exercise or a run, I just peel them right off. I put them down on the ground on the sidewalk in the sunshine. A quick sunbath. After using them, the sunshine kills the bacteria, exposes it to light, the funk, the smell, the dirt seems to clean itself off, hide it away. However, I experienced this once and the rest of my vacation whew, didn't go so well. The stink, the funk only grows. That same kind of practice of learning to face things in the light of day, expose them. Instead of packing them down deep and far away, putting them out of sight, out of mind, stuffing them down and away. That's where the movie for today, Inception, gets its spiritual significance. Now, how many of you have seen this movie already? All right. I'm not going to give away too much of the plot. It's a fun movie. I'm not quite sure it's as deep enough as the movie really thinks it is, but it's really quite good. So I'm going to try not to give too many spoilers away. What it's about is a sci-fi team of corporate spies for hire. Really what they are is they're elaborate con artists. What they do is they sync up their dream states with another person's dream, their mark, in order to be able to extract information from that mark. The focus in the movie, the new challenge, is that they are tasked with a specific thing, not to go into someone else's dream and take something out, extract information, but to go into another person's dream and leave something there. An idea that is so well disguised in another person's sub-subconscious that they will not comprehend that another person has put it in their mind. They will think that they generated it themselves. And because they think that and the idea is so brilliant, they will take it out of their dream and back into life when they awaken. The movie is visually awesome. It looks a lot like an Escher painting or an Escher drawing. The set pieces are intricate, amazing to behold. I do want to say, though, at times their representation, the movie maker's representation of the human subconscious is just a little too literal, a little too linear. I don't know. Many of you have ever seen the old Hitchcock movie Spellbound. Well, it had a lot fewer resources to deal with to be able to set up what a person's subconscious looked like. But I think in terms of the great weirdness, 
the richness, the imagery, the way the human subconscious is all about. I think actually that 50-year-old movie does it better than Inception does in helping to image what the great psychologist Jung called the undiscovered self, our subconscious life. The emotional and spiritual resonance of this movie, of Inception, comes from first fearing and then ultimately discovering that undiscovered self. Christopher Nolan, the filmmaker, is visually revolutionary, but his emotional themes in his movies are always quite classical. I think that's why his movies do so well. Whether it's Memento or the two most recent Batman movies, he shows characters in unusual situations, in unusual circumstance, but dealing with really classic emotional conundrums. People who are struggling with guilt or sadness or grief who yearn to be whole again. The main character this time in this movie is Leo DiCaprio, playing a man named Cobb. He is the team leader of these dreaming con artists. He is leaden with guilt. Even though he's not actually responsible for the death of someone that he loved dearly, he feels that he is responsible, and the authorities, the law, feel that he is responsible too. So he is not just in a state of being on the run physically, but also in emotional and spiritual exile as well. This great task that they're charged with of the inception of planting an idea in someone's mind, if he and his team are successful at this, he might be able to return home. And be released from exile. But because, as we would say, he hasn't processed his grief. He has not understood what makes him so broken. He only experiences the symptoms of it. This person who he feels responsible for their death. This person keeps popping up in his dream states that he brings into other people's dreams. And it seriously threatens to derail the work that they are trying to do. Now, this movie has sometimes been compared since it came out to The Matrix. But there's one big difference. And to paraphrase and really misquote Shakespeare, in this movie, the fault is not in our technology, but in ourselves. It has a different spiritual dimension than The Matrix. The theme is not how our machines, but how our own minds can betray us. Sometimes I think all of us know that the least trustworthy person we might know is the one who stares back at us in the mirror. I love what Gandhi said. Gandhi, who knew what it was to really love in this life and also love one's enemies because he had enemies who eventually took his life. He said that of all the enemies that he had, there was one over which he had almost no control. There was one person over which he had to struggle almost every day of his life. He said, that enemy is named Mohandas K. Gandhi. Over him, I have almost no control whatsoever. I can't quite trust him. This matter of trust comes up over and over and over again in the movie, both internally, whether we as viewers, and this is a message for another time, there's a legitimate question as to whether whatever we're seeing on the screen throughout the entire movie is real at all. I'm not going to engage with that. You can make up your own mind if you want to see the movie. But this issue of trustworthiness, can we authentically build trust within ourselves and between each other? 
This is what Leonardo DiCaprio's character says. The only way he can really get into someone's dream is if he earns their trust and they trust him. The problem is, is that he cannot practice this trust with himself. He keeps trying to run away and run away and run away from what is holding him back. We can see that the phrase resistance is futile, which often when it is said to us by another person is something placed upon us as a burden. But the resistance that is futile in this movie is the resistance that is true futility when we try to fight what is already inside of us. This is the kind of resistance that sometimes thinks it is free, but lives only in chains. There was a story from a number of years ago, I remember reading a guy named Richard Rubenstein, who was a rabbi in the 1960s, really reflected on where Judaism was after the Holocaust and wanted to reimagine the tradition because it said the old traditional way of being Jewish no longer works for the community at the time. He tells a story about the seminary, Jewish theological seminary, where he went to school, which was a moderate, more modern seminary than where some of his students had grown up. One particular student grew up in an extremely orthodox, almost Hasidic household where they observed the strictures about kashrut, about kosher. Now, this particular student in the lunchroom almost every day would make it known, hold it up aloud. I am eating a ham sandwich. I am eating a ham sandwich. He thought that he was free, but he was held in thrall to what he had left behind because he had not made his peace with it. He thought by exclaiming, I'm doing this, I'm totally free of it. But by needing to exclaim it every day, he was saying implicitly, I'm still held by it. The kind of image that I think this creates is of a dam, a dam that, as we know, creates energy But many dams also cause harm to the local environments in which they are placed. It builds energy. But at the same time, all that resistance of holding it back can cause so much damage to what is around it. There's one person in the movie who can see the damage that is being caused by the main character. Luckily, fortunately, I really give the filmmakers credit for it. They don't turn this person, this woman, just into a love interest. Her name's Ellen Page, the actress from Juno. And she plays a character named Ariadna, which if you remember your Greek mythology, what she did most particularly and what she does in this movie, she is the one who helps spin the red thread so that the one who slays the Minotaur can find their way out of the maze out of the labyrinth. She is the one who serves as the true compassionate friend to Leo DiCaprio's character, allowing him to find his way out. The only way out for him is through, that he has to go down and in. Eventually, he has to recognize that his guilt and his grief have to be faced. Throughout the movie, from a bunch of different characters' mouths and at different levels of dream state, this movie is about a dream within a dream within a dream, and maybe within a dream. The characters say several times, you can take a leap of faith. You don't have to grow old, filled with remorse. You can take that leap of faith. It's inviting the character 
inviting the character to move from a kind of command and control. Stuff it down. Stuff it in. Don't deal with it. Put it out of sight. To the leap of faith that allows us to say we might look upon our lives and indeed our very psyches with a compassionate witness. It harkens back to what Socrates said, know thyself, but it's even more important than that. It's not just know thyself, but care for thyself. For some, this injunction might seem self-indulgent. What good does it do other people if I spend time understanding the nature of my own psyche? And actually, I just heard an amazing articulation of why this is so important just this past week. I was reading the Yale Alumni Magazine, and there was a study that was done, the first study of its kind, about depression in first-year medical residents in their internship. 25% of all the interns that they studied are clinically depressed at some point during that year. That's a six-fold increase of how they started the year. And 40% of them at some point in that year, 40% of them experience some mental depression. Now, perhaps we say, well, we know that being a doctor in the first year is stressful and it's not healthy for them, and we understand that, but that's the testifier that they have to walk through in order to become a doctor. I don't agree with that. But this is the real key indication that in this study, the depressed interns were twice as likely, twice as likely, twice as likely as their non-depressed peers to commit serious medical errors. When our self is broken, it is very hard to be the full self that other people Sometimes their very lives, depending upon it, need us to be. In the movie, there's even a more extreme statement of this. Rather than an inception, it is the central deception, the central lie of the movie. Leonardo DiCaprio's character hides the fact of his guilty subconscious from the people in his dream state, from his co-workers, from the people who he says, you have to trust me. He does not trust them. And as a result, he imperils their very ability to ever achieve a reality, a relationship with reality again. Through his lying, he imperils their well-being. There's such an immense spiritual relational cost to this kind of hiding away of who we are. I have a friend who I saw my vacation and he has kind of an impish transgressive kind of humor and he told me that recently he had taken a trip through um, that random through Minneapolis you might see where this story is going and he went to a particular bathroom and to a particular set of stalls in that airport in Minneapolis and he tried to take the widest stance that he could this guy's like 6'2". He's got a very, very wide stance. He tried to see if it was at all realistic that what Senator Larry Craig had claimed when he was arrested for solicitation in one of the men's bathrooms in the Minneapolis airport, whether it was at all legitimate that he was, in fact, just taking a wide stance because he's so tall. My friend tested it out. It does not... Hold water. Now, all I know about Larry Craig really is this, Senator Larry Craig from Idaho. 
There are rumors about his personal life that he has, in fact, hid his identity, part of who he is, part of who he is that has integrity, hid that part of himself for his entire life, and that perhaps, perhaps, his true sexual orientation came out in this moment. So, in terms of the individual Larry Craig, I have compassion for him. I think we all should in terms of the struggle that, for whatever reason, he has had or felt he has had to hide who he is for so many years. But Senator Larry Craig, his political career has been built, has been built upon denying equality for other people. There is something so absolutely Freudian textbook about this, this self-hatred of some part of the self that we cannot accept or he could not accept or any person might not accept, projected outward onto some others, some person out there, some group of others who are demonized. This is the kind of lie that becomes a liability that the liar forces other people to pay for them. This game of hide and no seek of putting part of our true self away. It has such devastating consequences, broken hearts, broken relationships, broken lives, broken promises. I think that the only option for healing is its opposite. I believe that Jesus in this sense was absolutely right, that the truth can set us free if we really are diligent in trying to understand it. For years, I had a hide and no-seek relationship with my money, with my finances. I'll pay that someday. Bought things I didn't need, couldn't afford. It started in small and mindful acts and then eventually grew and grew and grew and grew until finally I had to face it. I had to face it one day. And what was the first true act and practice of my marriage? (laughs) When I had to sit down with my completely debt-free fiancé and open my books and say, this is where I stand. It was the first act in ultimately me getting debt free, but even more, it was that first real practice of marriage, of true relationship, of trust, of letting another person who I loved see where I was, even if I was not proud of it. One of our core values here at Wellsprings, you know this if you've been around for a bit, is spiritual practice. We talk about maintaining everyday spiritual practices that we are connected to our spiritual source and ourselves. In the contemplative spiritual traditions from which I draw my own daily spiritual practice, the image that comes up most often when they talk about the value or the affect or some of what can happen when we engage in regular spiritual practice is that we become more transparent to ourselves. We actually can see in an unclouded way who we really are and stop fighting ourselves so much. I love that Sam Harris, who is such an ardent opponent of so many forms of religion, often with exactly the right cause and the right reasons. He had this to say several years ago about the value of the contemplative spiritual traditions. He says these mystical experiences They have something to say about the plasticity of human experience itself and of our growing possibilities for human happiness. Resistance to our inner lives is so rigid, even sometimes violent, a violation of the self, stuffing it down, putting away, putting it in the dark, saying we're not going to take a look at it. Learning to have compassion 
for our inner lives is, to use his phrase, wonderfully plastic. Not in the sense of artificial, but in the sense of elastic. In the sense of giving ourselves room to roam inside of ourselves and having life go from something that seems very, very narrow to something that might actually give us room to breathe and to grow and to be. I've come to see my own contemplative spiritual practice as a peaceful confrontation with myself. I know what I see there sometimes I am not going to like. But I don't fight it. I think of it as a practice, if any of you know the martial art of Aikido, in which we use the opponent's, the aggressor's force against themselves and redirect it. In Aikido, there's a wonderful phrase, a word. It's called ukemi. And it translates so beautifully. Ukemi is the art of falling safely. Falling down, falling in, falling on our faces. At some point we all fall. There's no original sin in this. At some point we all fall. The art of falling safely, of learning to do that, I think is a leap of faith. It leads not to inception, not to conning someone. It leads not to deception, to lying to someone, but leads in the deepest way to conception. Not in the biological way, but in the sense of giving birth to ourselves each day. Giving birth to a true self. Becoming an honest person in which we can experience that deep source of creativity, of being, of love and compassion that is inside each and every one of our lives. This is what Gandhi, and I believe he knew this because he also knew that sometimes the person staring in the mirror was the person he could trust the least. This is what Gandhi called soul power, generative love and compassion and creativity. Soul power is radiant. It shines from outside of us, inside of us, all around us, and it shines into the lives of the people that we love the most, our communities, our families. Theodore Parker, the great Unitarian minister of the 1800s, He prayed once, let ours be a religion which, like sunshine, goes everywhere. I think it was the fifth dimension who put it just a little bit differently in the 1960s. Let the sunshine in. Let the sun shine out. In here, truly what we fear becomes our enemy. It is not ourselves if we learn to let the love And the sun shine in. Amen. May you live in blessing.